Christianity is a hinge. They have a couple parts. One part is on the door. One part is on the frame. The resurrection is the pin in the hinge. It makes the hinge work. So if you take the pin out, there's nothing really going to hold the door in place. If you've ever tried that, I told Wednesday night we were in the nursing home and I told them about the time that I put the pins out the door, and I went to kind of open the door to kind of shimmy it out, and it almost fell directly on me. Uh, turns out those pins are pretty important, aren't they? That's what the resurrection is to our faith. It is the pin. It's the thing that makes the hinge work. It's the thing that holds the door in place. It's the thing that matters the most. Now, every part is important, but this, this is the element Paul said of the Christian faith, that it's nothing, it's it's useless, it's vain without a resurrection. And so this morning, as we turn our thoughts toward not the cross, but the tomb, you can go to hundreds of thousands of churches all over the world today and hear, hear the basic sermon on the resurrection. And, and rightfully so. But I wanna I want to talk about the resurrection, but I want to talk about why it matters. We've been walking with Jesus for several weeks now. Uh, in his time, it's one week. We started this series in Mark with the, the triumphal entry. Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we've walked with him throughout this final week. He has directly opposed people who would turn the house of God into a place of business. Overturning tables. Kicking them out. Saying, my house is a house of prayer, and you're making it a den of robbers. He's, he's minced no words in teaching the truth to a religious elite that just don't really care. They would much rather keep their power, keep their status, and know the truth of God. He is he has taken the disciples into an upper room, shared with them. Passover like no other. A Passover that would take whole new meaning from that night and the night and the day to come. He prays in the garden. God help me. <laughs> in essence is what he prays. He says, take this cup from me. In the anguish and the toil of that moment where he stands on the cusp of giving up, he prays to God, not my will, but yours be done. And he finds strength to face the day ahead. Just after that, he's betrayed, mocked, tried, not really tried, convicted, sentenced, This morning, we do not serve a dead Savior, do we? Just a few minutes ago, Mitchell was trying to climb, climb up on this cross, and I said, well, you can't down from there. He said, I want to be Jesus. And I said, you don't need to be Jesus. You just need to be like Jesus. He said, but I don't want to be dead. But he ain't dead anymore, is he, Mitchell? 
Stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. We're going to read the first eight verses together. I'm convinced now more than ever, and I've been a Christian for quite a long time. I'm convinced now more than ever that this is God's Word. And if you will just let it, it will change your life. Listen to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went and brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man standing on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment that seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. Bow with me. Father, this is your day. Especially today. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But this day holds special meaning to us. Father, I pray that your word would captivate us. That your spirit would reign in our hearts. That, Father, we would know your words and that they would make all the difference. Father, use your word in this time. In Christ's name. I want to, I, I think first we, we want to look at Mark's account of the resurrection and consider what happens in these first eight verses and then, and then we'll, we'll take up the question of the day. Look at verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, so uh, it is now Sunday morning. For the Jews, Sabbath goes from Friday evening to Saturday morning and you don't do work on the Sabbath. You do not work on the Sabbath. That's God's holy day. And so that Sabbath day, I can't imagine, think about for just a second what that day must have been like. Your Lord, your, your master, the person that you have been following for the last couple of years has now died. Within less than a 24-hour period, he goes from eating supper to being buried. He goes from breaking bread to being laid in a tomb. That must have been a terribly, terribly confusing time. They all fled. They all ran away. But none of them, none of them really knew what was going on. Now Christ had told them, I'm going to die. It's appointed to the Son of Man to be killed. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I will rise again. He had told them that, but, you know, 
sometimes when you get in the moment and everything is happening, it's just too much. I can't imagine the fear and the anguish and the, the, the torment that they're going through. Can you, can you picture Peter? He must have been sick to his stomach over denying Christ. Can you, can you picture him? Can you see him there cramping, bent over, because he just can't bear the thought that this Lord that he loves so much, he won't even admit to knowing? He must have felt like he was smaller than an ant. And then you picture some of the other disciples. What are we going to do? What are we going to do now? We've staked our lives on this guy. Three years we've been following him. Three years. I, I had, I was a tax collector. You know what I'm saying? We, we were out fishing. And God called us. Jesus called us to follow him. Now what are we going to do? We don't have the boats anymore. I'm no longer, I'm no longer certified. I'm no longer a Roman tax collector. I'm no longer... I, I can't just go back to what I was doing. I mean, how are you going to follow up Jesus? Right? When you've been walking with Jesus for years, how are you going to follow that up with some career? You can't really do that. It's just not the same anymore. What are we going to do? We're terrified. feel so tiny because they neglected him, rejected him, denied him, run away from him. It must have been a torturous day that cabin. Not a day of rest. Well, after the Sabbath was over, Saturday night came, the Sabbath was over. You can't really go to the tomb at night. It's not like there's a bunch of lights around could just pull out your iPhone and flip on your flashlight to see where you're going. So they waited till Sunday morning. And it says that Mary Magdalene, you know Mary Magdalene, she was the one that had seven demons that Jesus had cured of. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, we don't know much about her. This may have been the mother of uh, the sons of Zebedee their mother. And Salome, we don't know much about her either. But they came, they brought spices. They're going to anoint the body. I mean, it was so fast. We, we had to get them in the ground, in the tomb. We couldn't, we couldn't anoint the body beforehand. We couldn't prepare it for burial. We just kind of had to throw it in because the Sabbath was coming. All in such a rush. And so now they want to pay the proper respects for their crucified Lord. Very early on the first day of the week, I get from some of the other gospel accounts putting together, I think they probably left the house before the sun had all the way come up. You know when it's just pre-dawn and there's this light? The sun hasn't risen yet, but you can kind of start to see where you are. I'm thinking around that time of the morning they get ready. And they make their way to the tomb. When the sun risen, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they're questioning some things. They say, who's going to roll it away? Verse 3, who, they're asking one another, who will roll away the stone from us, for us? 
But there's this stone, if you'll remember, there's this stone in front of the tomb. And the stone, obviously, is to keep people out. And these, these are a couple women. They're not strong enough to move the stone. Right? And so there's a physical barrier. Not only is there a physical barrier, John, uh, Matthew tells us a little bit more detail about that stone. Look at Matthew 27. Verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I'll rise. Boy, there's a lot there, but we, we won't park too long. Therefore, verse 64, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a heart of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. What would have happened is they would have put a wax seal on that stone, just like you would on uh, the back of a letter. Uh, they would have put this, this seal, this string across with wax on either side. And they would have imprinted the wax with some sort of seal. We don't know if it was the seal of the high priest. Maybe it was Pilate's own seal. But they would have imprinted a seal on that wax to say, basically, if you do not have at least my authority, you can't break this seal. You can't open this stone. And so there's this, there's this interesting scenario where it's kind of this double question. The, the, the physical, just the physical enormity of the stone. I mean, the end of verse 4 in Mark 16 says it was very large. So just to move the stone would have been incredible. But then not only to move the stone, but to have the authority to move the stone. Was something, who's going to do this for us? How, how are we going to get in? We don't have the credentials. Nor do we have the ability. And boy, I, I, I tell you, there's an there's a interesting connection here because sometimes we think that we have this personality that demands that God pay attention to us. We think we can just approach God on our terms and say, well, God, here I am. Now you have to give me what I want. Sometimes we pray as though we have authority over God. Do you ever see this? You've done this? I have before. I'll just freely admit. I have prayed to God like I was telling him his to-do list. And I want you to know that is not the way that it works. When I pray to God, I have to recognize that he has an authority that's above mine, and I don't just sidestep his authority to impose mine. But some of us approach God that way. We think that we can impose our authority upon God and make God do what we say. Make God who we want him to be. Make him in our image so that we can have the God that we want. Just ask. Just, just walk around and ask people what they think God is like. It's, it's one of my favorite questions to ask folks to start evangelistic conversation. What do you think God is like? Because what happens is we put God in our image. We exercise our authority. But when we come to the tomb, it, it's not marked with our authority. It's marked with her authority. When we approach God, we do not have 
what's funny is when they get there, this physical impossibility, this, this credential that is required to open the tomb, this strength that is required to move the stone, to get access to the body, to do the loving act that they want to do, what they find is it is not a barrier at all because the stone has already been moved. Verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Do you remember, uh, sometimes I'll tell you that there is this great tense that the action has already happened, but the effect is ongoing. That's had been rolled back. This is a completed action with an ongoing consequence. That stone is gone. It's gone. It has been rolled to the side. There is nothing blocking their entrance into the tomb as if God is saying there is nothing blocking you from seeing what I do. There is nothing anymore that can prevent you from having access to me. You see, you don't have the authority, but I do have the authority, and I have cleared the way for you. God has, through the resurrection, cleared the way for us to get to the risen Savior. But you say, well, wait a minute. He's not in there, though. No, he's not. See, before you get to the risen Savior, you've got to get to the crucified Savior. And then once you get to the crucified Savior, you've got to realize he ain't crucified anymore. You've got to come to the place where you realize that this isn't a dead guy. This is a living God. You see, and that, that makes all the difference, y'all. But, but verse 4, they, they go, they see the stone has been rolled away. It's permanently rolled away. It was something that they couldn't have rolled away because it was too big, and they didn't have the credentials. But God does not need the credentials to overrule Pilate. He does have those credentials. You see, God doesn't need the strength of ten men to move a giant boulder. God made the boulder. God made the stone from which that stone was queried. God made that whole earth from which that stone was queried. So don't tell me that my God does not have the ability, does not have the authority, does not have the wisdom or the power to do what he wants to do. My God is able to do anything and everything that he wants to do. But anyway, verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Now they're not expecting a young man sitting on the right side. They're expecting a dead body wrapped up in cloths. Isn't it interesting? Lord, that is wrapped in swaddling cloths at his birth, wrapped in burial cloths at his death. And when they get in, one of the other gospel writers tells us the cloths are just laying there. The cloth over his head was folded neatly, sitting there. Everything else I imagine looks like looks like you had taken a. a You'd wrap them around like a, a balloon or something and then just deflated the balloon. But they're just sitting there. And they see this young guy sitting there. He's dressed in a white robe. And what would you do if you saw this? What we, what we know from further along in the story is an angel. What would you do? Oh, thank goodness you're here. I've been waiting for you. You freak out, right? Yeah, you freak out. Okay, the rest of your life. Or you're just 
just ignorant, one or the other. I don't know. You freak out. This guy, this guy is sitting, I'm expecting a dead body, and there's this guy sitting here that I've never seen before, and he's dressed in this white robe, and some of the other gospel writers tell us that they're dazzling. That they're that they are they're bright and shining, and, and, and these angels of God. And what what do you do with this? No, no other choice. You freak out. That's okay. I think it's interesting that the first reaction we have of the empty tomb is freak out. It's not, oh, blessed be our Lord and Savior who has risen from the dead. No, they don't get it. And how oftentimes do we see things that God does and we don't even understand what he's doing? We don't even get what he's done. We don't even understand how in the world this could happen. We're trying to make sense of it with our brains and it's just not clicking. It's just not coming to us. How often do we see God's work of operating in our life, and we wonder what in the world is going on. I don't get it. They didn't get it. It says in all four gospel accounts, all four, that they were afraid and that they didn't understand what he had done. Number six, the guy tells him, don't be alarmed. <laughs> don't you love it? The angel's like, don't be alarmed. Relax. I got this. Don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Now, how many of you have ever seen how many of you have ever seen a dead person come back to life? so caught up with the theology of it. We get so caught up with the story. We, we, we think along these lines of Jesus was dead and then he rose from the dead, but we don't actually get how monumental that is. Think about a resurrection for a second. If you've ever seen a dead person come back to life, well, you have it, right? Not a very common thing. There are um, some people that talk about being dead for so many minutes and seeing certain visions and coming back to life. Certain people that they kind of they go clinically dead, chronically dead almost, and, and then they come back after a little bit. Um, people that go flat on the heart monitor for a while and then they suddenly revive. Um, and and there's different stories and things like that. But I mean, you're hard pressed to look at an example. This is not something we see every day. It's not something we see any day. Dead people do not walk around. You walked in this morning, and your dead relative, pick one, your dead relative is sitting on the pew where you normally sit. What are you going to do? Freak out. Thank you. Yes, you would. Don't even try to pretend. First, you check your eyes. Am I seeing this right? Maybe this is someone else who just kind of looks like them. No. You find out it's them. Then you're freaking out, right? You see, dead people don't come back to life. They're dead. Kind of, kind of opposite things. We miss the fact 
that Jesus was actually dead. Really, truly, actually dead. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't hiding around the back while someone else took his place, like some people might say. No, he actually died. He literally died. And then he literally was not dead. Think about that. Now, this is something he had done before. Lazarus, come out. They knew that he was able to raise the dead, but it's something different for you to raise from the dead than for you to get somebody else up. And they had seen him raise Lazarus. They had seen him raise a kid that was that had sick, was sick and had died. And, and they even saw one time, they saw him healing people from a distance. Centurion comes to him and says, you don't even have to bother coming. Just say the word. And they'd seen some incredible things. This was different. This, he is risen, uh, in verse 7, or in verse 6, excuse me, he is risen. That's in the, interesting, I find this interesting, it's in the, that's another one of those, it's already happened, but it on, the effect on, goes on forever. It's in that same form. He's not risen for a short time. He's not back for a limited time only. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not an offer that's going to expire soon. And so you got to go see him right now before it's too late. He's risen, and he always will be risen. He's defeated death. You can't defeat death if you've never died. Think about it. If you died, or if you never died, if you just said, "I'm not going to die." Well. Nobody's really going to believe you, right? Because you, how do we know? You die tomorrow. You come up. But if you die and you come back to life and you tell people, I give, I can give you eternal life, boy, that, that, that's a completely different kind of thing. See, we miss the miracle of the resurrection because we're too focused on either the theology of it or what we're going to eat for lunch after the service is over. And we don't see the fact that God has actually raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. He was dead, and now he lives. We miss that. And when we miss that, it's so simple to, to see, and yet we miss it. Because we want to either make it into some kind of philosophy, or some kind of inspirational message, or just something we endure because Mama makes us go to church on Easter. And that's it. And, we, and there's no difference in our lives. It makes no difference whatsoever. And that is the great tragedy of the resurrection. It's such a monumental, such an important action of God in human history would be treated as though it doesn't even matter. That is the tragedy of this day. As bad as it was for Jesus to die, he overcame that. Great tragedy is that we treat Christ like He doesn't matter. And so I want to turn to the question. I want to turn to where where it really faces us. What difference does the resurrection make? 
tell you it makes a big difference, but why take my word for it? Don't listen to a few examples. Paul. Paul was public enemy number one for the early church. Stephen is being stoned. Paul's holding the coats so that other folks can stone him. Some people think that's because Paul was the chief accuser. And so he holds everybody else's coats while they get the punishment. Paul decided to go around touring all over the Roman world just to put Christians in prison, just to do in the faith. He's on the way to Tarsus, and he meets the resurrected Christ. Let me tell you what a difference it makes. He's talking to the Philippian church, and he's telling them that, you know, I've got plenty of reason to brag. I mean, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I, I'm a Pharisee. I am zealous to no end. I, I check all the boxes. If anybody is going to deserve God's salvation through the law, it's me. And yet, he says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as laws. He's not saying, I lost a bunch of stuff, and I'm fine with it. He's saying, I had a bunch of stuff, and I gave it all up. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all as rubbish. The word is dumb. In order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm willing to give up everything else so that I can know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Now that does not sound like a guy who says, eh, it's not all that important. He has been willing to give up everything he has worked for because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He says, he says, and that resurrection is going to lead to my resurrection one day too. So don't, don't just take Paul. Take Peter. Look at Peter. Peter, you know him. He's, he's the loudmouth that says, I will not deny you, and then denies him three times that same night. Right? Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you catch what he's saying? The resurrection has the power to give you a new birth. I'm going to tell you something that maybe you've never heard. I heard this week the way that a pastor put it, and I thought, man, that is gold. I'm going to use that on Sunday. He said, how, it, it, let's just say one of you had your grandbaby or your child in your arms and you're showing them off, right? Because that's what you do with new babies, you show them off. All, all the little old ladies are, oh, he's so cute. And everybody wants to get his little feet, toes, and, and pinch his cheeks or whatever. And the mama doesn't want you to touch his cheeks because he's a newborn and he'll get sick and you leave my baby alone. 
Now imagine someone walks up to him, picks up that baby, and says, I think that baby was born wrong. I think he needs to be born another time. You'd slap him, wouldn't you? Thomas, would you, would you slap him? That's exactly what Christ says when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You were born wrong the first time. You were born in sin. And because you were born in sin, you were born the wrong way. You need to be born again so that you can be born the right way. So that you can be born spiritually. That's what he's saying. And Peter says, because of the resurrection, we can be born again. Born into a living hope. Not a dead hope. Not a misplaced hope. Not a false hope. But a living hope. And just listen to Peter. How about John? John, the beloved disciple, won't even name himself in his that He and Peter find out the news that the tomb is empty, and they don't believe it, so they start running. Peter runs, and John outruns him, making sure everybody for all eternity knows that he ran faster than Peter. He gets to the tomb, he looks in, Peter comes in and looks in, and then in verse 8 it says, Then the other disciple, this is John, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw... And believed. He didn't even need to see the resurrected Christ. All he saw was the empty tomb and he knew Jesus was alive. And it was enough for him to stake the cross on. And again, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. He didn't quite know how it all worked, but it didn't matter. You see, through the resurrection of Christ, we can have confidence in our faith, even if we can't explain it. Even if we can't even if we can't defend it. We know it's true because of the resurrection. Ladies, I know y'all are feeling like well. Look at Mary Magdalene. Told you. She's one of the ones at the tomb. Seven demons. Imagine the torture of seven demons. Imagine all of the anguish that she's going through when Christ heals her and it makes such a big impact on her that she follows him around for the rest of his ministry. Serving him. Ministering to him. This one who gave her freedom is now devoting her life to Christ. And then, John tells us in John 20, 16, Jesus, he, he's, in, he's at the tomb. He doesn't know where the body is. He turns around she sees the gardener and she doesn't know it's Jesus. And she begs him, please, if you, just, if you can just tell me where the body's laid. I'll go get him. I, I don't want him to be any trouble for you. Just tell me where you put him, and I will take the body, and I'll deal with it. And he looks at her, and I, I can imagine she is, her eyes are full of tears. She can't even really see. And he says, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, it's only. John tells us it means teacher. It's, it's a little bit more than teacher. It's not teacher. And then in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. Punctuation is not in the original manuscript, but I'm pretty sure an exclamation point belongs right there. And that he had said these things. 
Give up calmness. Give up natural calmness. You say, oh, well, he's the doubt. But you, you've been gone. How can you hold you that someone that you really cared about that had just died is now walking around? I just saw him. You think that you think that I probably need need to go see a couple of doctors and possible need some pills and in a straight jacket. Thomas says, I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I have to see it. And he, and he just I have to see the hands and, and see the feet and, and touch the wound in his side. And then Jesus comes in the room and he turns to Thomas and he says, Put your finger here. Put, put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. experienced the turnaround that these men and women have experienced from knowing the resurrected Christ I'm going to tell you something the resurrection makes one thing clear you cannot sit on the fence if you believe then it will change everything even if you don't believe it will change everything too. because if you choose not to believe the resurrection that is it The resurrection makes us come face to face with Christ and answer the question, what are you going to do with me? This morning, you may be wrestling with that decision. I'm going to be here at the front. I'm going to ask this community if you would just come quietly. Maybe you need to come to that decision where you put faith in Christ, just like Thomas did, just like John did, just like his disciples did. I'm going to be up here at the front. I'm going to help you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been living your life and, and, and you're saved. You know that you put faith in Christ, but then you just know who's here. doing your best, you're trying your best, but it's just not working. And you just need the power of God's resurrection to change you and make you more like Christ. The altar's open. Feel free to come. If you need to talk to someone, I'll be here.